join me in prayer. Lord, just as we were minded to give cheerfully of our offering, may we give cheerfully of our hearts this morning to you. May we give cheerfully our ears to listen, that we would not resist what it is that you want to say to our hearts, and let it be what you say to our hearts. May the Spirit of God speak through me and to me and to each and every one in this room that we would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that is you speaking. And then we act on that in your power and your grace and for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. YOLO. No, that is not my Boston accent trying to say the color yellow. YOLO. Who knows what it means? Just raise your hand. Yeah, it's probably the younger and a few others, yes. Well, I've referred to an age difference here. I am too. If you're over 25 or 30, YOLO likely means nothing to you. If you're under 25, you may be so familiar with it that you're completely sick of it. It was listed as one of the worst words of 2012. Now, I don't know where they come up with these lists. I don't think you want that word on it, but this one is. YOLO is the acronym for you only live once. You only live once. It was popularized thanks to the rapper Drake, and the buzzword spread quickly among young teens and college age. Now, theologically, it isn't completely accurate. I have to always think that way. Hebrews 9.27 says it plainly, just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. You see, really, it ought to be Yodo, but I doubt that's going to catch on. And even scripture refers to a second death. But words and phrases like that, Yodo, often speak volumes, YOLO, speak volumes of the attitude of the day. The word through the 90s, you might recall, was the word whatever, whatever. And it characterized the mindset of that generation. Whatever, kind of hang loose. No plans, see what happens. Whatever. And while the phrase, you only live once, has been around as long as Mae West and used by the comedian Joey Lewis and cropped up in many other places since then, it most certainly captures a prevalent and modern philosophy. The sentiment is similar to carpe diem, which means seize the day, and yet for many, though, it has a more dangerous and harmful connotation. They're going to take risks because YOLO, you only live once. Don't eat just a small stack of pancakes. Eat a big stack of pancakes. You only live once. That's the attitude. But it goes beyond that into reckless behavior. They might say, well, should I buy these shoes or pay my rent? YOLO, I only live once. I'm going I'm to buy these shoes. Should I take this trip and go in debt or pay my bills? YOLO, you only live once. I'm going to take the trip. And more serious than that, should I do what is right or get wasted? YOLO, you only live once. I might as well get wasted. Should I live for myself? Should I risk my life? Should I live it up? YOLO, you only live once. Why not? 
And it is used as a license to do whatever you want. It is to live recklessly and used as an excuse for risky, dumb behaviors. Now, allow me to sanctify this well-used word among many today. And really, I want to turn it on its head. Isn't it true that we only have one chance at this life? We do not come to the end of this life and get a do-over. And so there's a very real sense in which it is true we only live once, and what we do with this life has consequences for the life to come. They've kind of left out that part. Well, our passage this morning addresses this philosophy of you only live once. Now, before taking a Christmas break from this series, we left off at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 6. And as we began a new year, we could not return to our study in the book of 1 Peter at a more appropriate time with a more appropriate section than what we are looking at this morning. Now, I want to remind you of the theme we have been exploring in this book of 1 Peter. It is the theme, Living Life on Purpose. And behind that major theme are two critical principles for understanding 1 Peter and really understanding our Christian life. One principle is that God's primary concern for us is our holiness, not our happiness, our holiness. That's one principle. And secondly, the second principle that runs concurrent with this major theme is suffering is never an excuse for ungodly choices. No matter how bad you have it, no matter what's going on in your life, you do not have excuse then to live ungodly. And Peter is writing to troubled believers who are undergoing many trials and feeling the weight of much suffering. He wants to remind them and us that in light of suffering, we can lead a holy life and that our choices do, in fact, matter. And what Peter says next here is germane to the whole matter of Christian living. I am totally convinced that if we practice, get this, if we practice what is in these verses right here, the church will be revived and the watching world will really take notice of us. I am that convinced of it. I could almost go as far as to say everything in our Christian life can be boiled down to what we have here in verses 7 through 11. Now, there was a time I viewed this section of Scripture as kind of a string of admonitions only loosely connected. My thoughts have since changed. It is only the Holy Spirit who, in an economy of words, can say an eternity of truth. I can't do that. The Spirit can. What is the word for us this morning? What is the word for First Baptist Church of Westerlo? It is this, very simply, live well in the time we have. Live well in the time we have. Don't know how much time we have. And just coming through this last month, deaths that you would go, whoa, That person was perfectly healthy. Didn't see anything going wrong with this. 22 years old doesn't make sense. Brevity of life. Live well in the time we have. And Peter then gives us an incentive for doing that. He gives us some instructions on living that way. And then we're going to look at the intention, which we're only briefly. 
But first of all, let's look at the incentive. The incentive. I want you to notice with me the flow of thought as we make our way into these verses for this morning. Peter, under the direction of God, the author of all scripture, has talked about our precious salvation back in chapter 1. It is so precious that it demands our very best. He then spoke about our present situation or their present situation and that we're all called upon to live in such a way to make our evangelism believable. So Peter has moved us along from our view of salvation, which is precious, and our view of our present situation to now our view of the second coming, which is going to take us to the end of the book. And what links it all together is a word that is missing in most translations, and yet it is in the original. It's the very first word of 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. It is the word now. Now. Most of you don't have it in your translations. Now. Now, verse 7 says, now the end of all things is near. Now it's worthwhile to go back to what just preceded this to get the full impact of these words. So stay with me, because I want to go back and pick it up at verse 3 of chapter 4. Go back to verse 3 of chapter 4. I appreciate Bob's comments earlier in his introduction to this, because he's nailing it here, because we're going to go back to verse 3 to pick it up. Verse 3 of 1 Peter chapter 4, follow along with me. It says, For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. Folks, this is YOLO-type thinking right here. You only live once, I might as well get drunk. You only live once, you might as well live it up. But notice verse 5. This is what they haven't thought about, verse 5. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And on that note, Peter adds verse 7, now the end of all things is near. God is ready to judge. It may be sooner than you think. It is near. Now, what did Peter mean by saying that the end of all things is near? Is Peter predicting that Jesus was coming back in his lifetime and and therefore was mistaken? Well, we see the word end And we think cessation or or, or termination. But the word end, tell us, doesn't mean that here. It is never used to speak of some kind of chronological end or that something stops. It is the idea of consummation or a goal achieved or a fulfillment realized. That's what it means when Scripture says end. So Peter here is saying that the consummation, the goal, the fulfillment of all things is at hand. And this period referred to as the end began with the first coming of Christ as we just celebrated over the Christmas season. It was at that moment when Christ came as a baby that ushered in the last days. He came the first time to put away sins, pay the penalty for our sins. The next time he comes, it is to establish his kingdom for those who belong to him. And Peter is saying the next event and the drama of redemption is near. So we are to live with expectancy. We ought to live in expectancy knowing that the one who is coming will will come as judge of the living and the dead. You see, you only have one shot at this. 
Yehoshat. That one's definitely not going to fly. You only have one shot at this. This generation is using YOLO as a term for selfishness. To live a self-absorbed life that is my life, and I can do what I want with my life. Really. Loved ones, we know better. We know better. We have an incentive to live for something bigger than this life. If this is the only chance we have to make a difference for all of eternity, do I really want to waste it? Do I really want to squander it? Is YOLO about having a good time and getting all I can in the time I have? No, the warning to the church is live the rest of your life for God's will because God stands ready to judge. Live well in the time we have. We sang it earlier. Christ is risen from the dead. That's a fact. What's to be our response? Come awake. Come awake, church of Christ. Come awake. And let's be honest. We are sometimes living as if this life is all that there is. We are. I'm guilty of it. And so the church in America, the church in America has become riddled with consumerism, with pragmatism, with professionalism, with self-absorption, and worst of all, we have called it Christianity. It needs to be revived. The incentive is clear. You only live once and then face judgments. Christ can show up anytime to take us home, and all that was lived for him will last, and all that was lived for self will go up in smoke. That's sobering. Not sobering enough, however. Because there's times I just blow that off, no pun intended. Are you living in expectation of his return? While on a South Pole expedition, British explorer Ernest Shackleton left a few men on Elephant Island promising that he was going to return later. Well, later when Shackleton tried to return, huge icebergs blocked his way and he couldn't get to them. It was delayed. And after several attempts, a way was finally opened up in the ice, and Shackleton was able to finally get to his men on the island. And his men, ready and waiting, quickly scrambled aboard. And no sooner had the ship cleared the island when the ice crashed together behind them. Contemplating their narrow escape, Shackleton said to his men, It was fortunate you were all packed and ready to go. And they answered, we never gave up hope. We were always ready to go, reminding each other, the boss may come today. Are you ready to go? Are you ready to go? I'm not talking about getting in your pajamas and standing on the rooftop and waiting for Jesus to come. That's not the kind of waiting I'm talking about. Are we living every moment in anticipation of the coming of Christ, holding on to the things of this earth very loosely? Are we? A greeting in the early church was not so much hello or goodbye, but Maranatha. 
Maranatha, meaning our Lord comes. Our Lord, good thing to remind each other, Maranatha, our Lord comes. And perhaps it is that outward look that just might revolutionize our lives. See, in light of eternity, we must prayerfully ask, how are we then to live? The incentive is met with some instructions, and Peter gives us some instructions here. Four marks of a Christian living in constant expectancy of Christ's return. There's four marks here. We're going to pick up the first one at the end of verse 7. It says, therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Well, what is the first instruction? What is the first mark of one who, who's living in constant expectancy of Christ's coming? The first mark is, is one who stays spiritually alert. It is one who stays spiritually alert. Now, I believe that Christians overall have the desire for spiritual excellence. I believe that Christians overall want to do what is right and long to be what God wants them to be. The problem isn't in the wanting, not in the wishing. It is in what is required to produce it. What is required? Why isn't wanting and wishing enough? How do we not come apart at the seams in the moment of crisis? How do we stay spiritually alert? How can we be clear-minded and self-controlled that leads to effective prayer? There's only one way, having daily discipline. You see, you can't live a life out of control, a life that lacks spiritual discipline and expect that when the crisis moment comes to somehow react like Christ. And somehow we just magically think that we can be sloppy in our daily living and yet be ready for when crisis hits. You can't do it. You can't do it. You cannot and should not expect to respond like Christ in the moment of crisis if you're not living as Christ would want you to live the rest of your life. You can't expect it. Frankly, that's how too many Christians live. We live like children given a five-minute warning. (laughs) We've practiced that over the years, a five-minute rule with our kids, preparing them that we're leaving in five minutes. Now, sometimes mom and dad forget five minutes and it becomes 30 minutes, but, but the principle is you got five minutes and then we're leaving. But have you noticed, parents, when you give your child that five-minute warning, what happens? They usually try and get the most of the five minutes. They want to play with that every toy one more time or their favorite toy one last time and they'll do whatever they can to get it. Or they want to go on that slide one more time in five minutes, their favorite slide. They got to go there and look out if you're in their way because they're going on that one more. They only have five minutes. You see it in the play area at McDonald's. That's, that's a mess. Kids trampling over other kids when the five-minute warning's given. At times, it causes frantic behavior. The end is near. God has given us five more minutes. It's not intended for us to go berserk and cram everything in with the time left, but to be what? Self-controlled and sober-minded. It is to be sane, having a sound mind, thinking about and evaluating situations maturely and correctly with eternity in view. It is to have a, a clear head, So you can accurately think about how you're living your life in view of his return that could be in five minutes. 
Then make the decisions, painful ones if necessary, to live the rest of your days for him. Staying spiritually alert is a mark of one focused on our Lord's coming and who gives himself to a life well lived. There's a second mark of one living in constant expectancy of Christ's return, and it is one who stretches out in love. It is one who stretches out in love. Verse 8 says, Above all, love each other deeply. We could translate it this way, Keep your love for one another at full strength. Picture a runner at the end of the race, stretching out as far as he can, lunging forward in order to be the first one to break the tape at the finish line. Picture that. The same one who does the long jump. They leap in the air, they throw their feet forward, and with great intensity, stretch every single muscle of their body to go as far as they can. That's the picture of what our love ought to look like. It's to stretch ourselves out in love for others. If you're not feeling it, you're probably not loving it. If you're saying, ah, I can do this, you're probably not. It's going beyond what we can do. It's stretching out. Then it says, Love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Why do we need the rest of verse 8? Because as we get serious about the time we have left, as we live with constant expectancy of Christ's return, we will go deeper into community. We will. And as we go deeper into community, what's going to happen? I can guarantee this. We're going to hurt each other. We're going to discover that people aren't always easy to love. We're going to be sinned against and we're going to be offended by others and, and we're going to, everything inside of us is going to want to retreat from that. That's not a person living in, in constant expectancy of Christ's return because you're willing to go back deeper in the community. We're called to keep on loving others because sin will demand it. We don't cover up sins by avoiding people but by actively loving them. Now what sin and the person who committed that sin comes to your mind right now? A pastor who was visiting a Catholic retreat center when he noticed a confessional in the back of the chapel. And so he was curious as to what this room looked like. And so out of curiosity, he decided to check it out. So he went into that back room, a confessional, and he opened the door of the confessional, and he was startled to find, of all things, a file cabinet. Now think about that. A file cabinet. This pastor goes on to say, That might very well describe what we do with the sins of others. Sometimes that's what marriage is like. Every sin and weakness of our spouse is kept in a mental file cabinet. Or the sins and wrongs of other brothers and sisters in Christ are filed away to be retrieved as needed. Or the sins of our children or the sins of our siblings go into that file cabinet and are taken out and used in our defense. Do you need to empty the file cabinets? Do you? Why waste our days with unforgiveness? Why waste our days in self-pity and in bitterness and resentment and anger and inflicting harm on others? Why? Have you forgotten? Christ can return at any moment. Live in expectation. 
And not only are we to love one another, but we show that love by caring for one another. A third mark of one who lives in expectancy is one who shows hospitality. Notice verse 9. It instructs us to offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, why did it have to add that last part? (laughs) Well, again, as we grow deeper into community, we will have ample reason for, for grumbling, guaranteed. The more you open up your heart to others, the more you let others into your life and into your home, the greater the risk for disappointment, the the greater that you'll see that people are ungrateful and they may not reciprocate and they will make demands. So Peter adds, without grumbling. Now I remind you of the great sermon we heard last week from the book of Numbers. Jeff brought it to us. The word used here for grumbling is the same idea as the rabble spoken of who caused a stir by complaining in the book of Numbers, chapter 11. Get the CD. The meaning here is of repeated words of complaint that are spoken to others with the result of stirring up trouble or stirring up rebellion. Now, we may think our complaining is harmless. You go, ah, I'm just grumbling. That doesn't hurt anybody else. Think again. It harms the community and has a rippling effect on all those it touches. Like the little girl who was asked to pray for the meal as guests of the family sat around the table. And the guests were all around the table and mom said to the little girl, why don't you pray for the meal? And the little girl replied, but mom, I don't know what to say. Mom gently answered, honey, just say what you hear your mommy say. (laughs) You see it. So a little girl bowed her head and prayed, Dear Lord, why did I ever invite these people over here? <laughs> they pick up on it. Ah, it's harmless. Really? They know. They hear. We hear each other. Our grumbling rubs off on others. Show hospitality because it's right. Show hospitality because we're God's people. Show hospitality because we only live once. And what we do for Christ now will last. Yeah, there's one, a fourth mark of one who lives in expectancy. It's also one who serves one another. Verse 10 says that each one should use whatever gift is received to serve others. It says here, notice it, each one, implying that every person in the community of believers has been given a gift to use in the church. Everyone. He didn't skip you. Follower Christ, you've been given a gift. Are you using it? And notice the purpose of the gift. It goes on to say, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. What is it to be used for? For myself? No, it's to be used for others. I don't preach for the purpose of then listening to my own sermons on CD. That would be painful, but I don't do it for that. But I am to preach to be used for others. I am to preach, and anyone with a speaking gift is to do so with the seriousness of purpose as if we are speaking God's words. It says in verse 11, if anyone speaks, he should do it as one who speaks the very words of God. And the one with a speaking gift may be inclined to get carried away with his or own ability to use words effectively and forget that the gift was given to communicate God's word, and that's why the reminder's there. But then goes on to say, if anyone serves, 
He should do it with the strength God provides. And a serving gift is any kind of helping or encouraging ministry in the church. Again, what? For what purpose? The benefit of others. And the one with a serving gift may be inclined to downplay its usefulness and go about serving in their own strength, forgetting that God is the one who empowers them for effectiveness. And that is why he says at the end of verse 11, he should do it with the strength that God provides. Don't underestimate, servers, your gift. Don't say, ah, not that big a deal. Pastor needs anointing. I don't. Yes, you do. The bottom line here is, We only live once, so live a life of service for the benefit of others. Let me be blunt. If you're not using your gift, you cripple the body of Christ. There are two groups of people when it comes to the church. There are those who come and see the church as room service. It exists to give me what I want, expecting little of me. All I need to do is call in my order for my room and then wait for it to be delivered to me. Some see the church as room service where you get served. But it's to be more like a home-cooked meal where you serve others. These are the instructions. These are the marks of one living with an expectancy of Christ's return. Stay alert. Stretch out in our love for others. Show hospitality without grumbling and serve in ministry as a conduit of God's grace to others. And what's the key to all of this? If you miss everything else, grab this. What's the key to all of this? One word. Begin. Begin. We need to stop saying when. When I graduate, when I get married, when I am old, when I retire, when this happens, when my circumstances change, when? What is your when? In 2013, let's turn our when into now. Today is the day of opportunity. What are we going to do with today? We spend so much time worrying about what we're going to do, we miss out what we should be doing now. Live well in the time we have. Now, begin. Someone wrote these words. I spent a fortune on a trampoline, a stationary bike, and a rowing machine, complete with gadgets to read my pulse and gadgets to prove my progress results and others to show the miles I have charted, but they left off the gadget to get me started. (laughs) Isn't that true? Right? It's been said, God can do great things through you, but you've got to get off the couch. Why? What's the intention? I'm simply going to mention the final words of verse 11. We've seen the incentive. We've seen some instructions. Here's the intention. Paul, uh, excuse me, Peter breaks out into a doxology. He says in verse 11, to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Why do we do all of this? Why are we to live this way? That God may be glorified. And Peter adds, amen. Amen. Let it be. Let my life be to the glory of God. You want to make a resolution, that is it. At a prestigious university, they had this rule that if the professor had not arrived in class within the first 15 minutes of the hour, the class was considered a walk 
and the students were free to leave with no penalties for missing class. The rooms in the school were equipped with the old-fashioned style clocks with a minute hand mechanically ticked ahead after each minute. The students discovered that they could cause the clock to jump ahead one minute if they hit the clock with an eraser from the marker board. And this professor of this one particular class was not the most punctual, so it became a ritual for these students to take target practice at the clock. And after a few well-aimed erasers hit their target, bingo, 15 minutes had passed, and the class walked. (laughs) This happened many times throughout the semester. At the end of the semester, the final exam rolled around. The professor strolled into the room and he passed out the test and he said, you have one hour to complete this test. He then went around and he collected all the erasers in the room and he began to take aim at the clock. And when he had successfully jumped the clock ahead one hour, the professor called, time's up, and then collected the exam papers. There will be a day When God calls out, time's up. He sets the time. He can call it any time he chooses. And you know what? We can't fool God. He knows what we're doing with the time that we have. You only live once. Do we really want to spend it throwing erasers at a clock? Do we really want to attempt to fool God? Let's not waste the time we have. Let's use it for his glory. What's the word? Live well in the time we have. YOLO, you only live once and then judgment. So the time is now. Let's pray. Lord, help us to be purposeful. Help us, God, to get our minds around this this morning, to live with the incentive that the end of all things is near. And to have that expectancy and allow that expectancy to drive us and motivate us to get into lives and to invest in people and to send our treasures ahead to heaven and make a difference in the world right now in the time that we have. Oh, may we do it not for self-glory and self-praise, but all to the glory of God. Amen. Mike's going to come and lead us in a change of hymn to...